Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. You're listening to the Reinvention Project with Jim Rome podcast. Welcome to episode 23 of the Reinvention Project with Jim Rome. And I do want to say a couple of things right off the top this week. Number one. I want to tell you how much I appreciate those of you who are working this podcast into your weekly routine and for letting me know how much you're getting out of it. Secondly, I have to say I am having an absolute blast doing it because I'm learning some amazing things from fascinating folks that I ordinarily would never get a chance to talk to, and I'm doing it every single week. Now, while my personal reinvention, frankly, is nowhere near complete and in some ways more challenging than I thought that it would be, this podcast and this commitment keeps me accountable and on track, and it's honestly one of the most rewarding things that I've ever done in my career. So nearly six months now into this journey, I felt that it was important to thank you for all of your support and to share those thoughts right off the top. And this episode is a perfect example of why I do what I call the side hustle to the side hustle. Because frankly, I probably would never have a conversation with this week's guest on my daily sports talk radio program or my weekly sports podcast, which would be really unfortunate because I am so much better for this conversation, and I know you will be too. This week's guest is Brad Stahlberg. He's an author, an executive coach, a speaker, and an authority on peak performance. A fascinating dude who works with executives, entrepreneurs, physicians, and elite athletes, and who has written a great new book that applies to every single one of us. The book is called The Practice of Groundedness, A Transformative Path to Success That Leads, Not Crushes Your Soul. Believe this. I don't ever remember a time that required the ability to remain grounded more than the time we're living in right now. Let's face it, stress, anxiety, depression, burnout, they're all at an all-time high. So how do you combat that? How do you stay in the fight, much less win that fight on a daily basis? By staying grounded. And you'll find out how with this week's guest, Brad Stahlberg, in episode 23 of The Reinvention Project, which is coming at you right now. Now, Brad, you and I have never spoken before, so number one, very, very nice to meet you. Thanks so much for making the time. So how are you and yours doing, Brad, during this most unusual time as we get into this conversation? You know, we are hanging in there. Um, It has definitely been an interesting last year and a half plus some, um, but can't complain. At an arm's length, everything's good. We've got our health. uh, So yeah, could be worse. Good. Glad to hear it. So you've written a brand new book and it dropped this week. And the message to me, Brad, is as important now as it's ever been. The book is entitled The Practice of Groundedness, A Transformative Path to Success That Feeds Not Crushes Your Soul. So to me, there's a lot in the title alone, but why don't we start right there? In fact, why don't you help me with this? What does it mean to be truly grounded? So I like to think about being truly grounded is being fully situated where you are in the present moment from a place of stability and genuine confidence. This doesn't mean that you don't ever want to get better. It doesn't mean that you don't want to strive for things, but it means that that is coming from a place of having a very solid foundation. Uh, I think that we are so 
apt to get caught up chasing bright and shiny objects on the latest quote unquote hack that we so often neglect our base or our foundation. And it's only once you have that foundation that you can really take off and soar. All right. So to me, that's really interesting. Let me ask you this. Does that mean, in fact, I have to assume that doesn't mean that ambition and drive cannot coexist with being fully grounded, right? I mean, or or can you not be that type A hard driver? And is that at odds with what you're talking about? It is not. And I think that the biggest distinction here, and there's a lot of nuance, is there are two ways to climb to the peak of a mountain. One way is to completely obsess the whole time about getting on top and being worried what people might think of you if you don't get on top. Every single footstep, you're obsessing about reaching the top of the mountain. The other way to get to a peak of a mountain is to really be present for the process of the climb and be focused on each step, enjoy the people that you're with, maybe even take in the views. The end result is the same, right? You both, both, both parties get to the top of the mountain, but the whole texture of the striving is completely different if you're grounded. Yeah, that's interesting. I want to get into that texture in a minute. But for instance, like anxiety, depression, burnout, they're at all-time highs. You believe our nation is actually dealing with a mental health crisis. Why is that in your opinion? Like what's happening here and what's driving this? I think it's a couple of things. I think the first thing is that we've become so obsessed with external achievement and um, external validation that people like it's cannibalizing time spent for building deep community, for relationships, even for enjoyment. So there's been this huge trend about optimization and efficiency. But if you're always optimizing and you're always trying to be as efficient as possible, guess what gets crowded out? All the good stuff in life. And I think that the culture has swung so far in the direction of push, 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 more, 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 always be on, always be striving. Um, every person becomes a brand constantly be tweeting, posting on Instagram. And if you were an alien to look at us from a spaceship, you'd be like, of course, everyone's anxious and restless. How could they not be? So it seems to me, Brad, what you're saying is what you're espousing is maybe a new and better way to define and pursue success. And from what I'm hearing, this is what most people would call success. If we were to turn this thing on its head or maybe kind of move in a direction where you're pointing is towards, how would you now describe or define and pursue success? What, what or how should we be doing it? So my definition of success that I try to hold myself to personally, and as well as my coaching clients, and hopefully it's the definition that comes out in, in the book itself, is being well and doing well. And what I mean by the being well part is not feeling like you're constantly restless, not getting caught up in frenetic and frantic energy and anxiety, truly being situated, feeling whole, feeling confident. And doing well is acting out in a way that is in alignment with your core values. And core values are the things that you deeply aspire to. They're the person that you are when you're at your best. They might even be found by thinking about someone that you admire and you ask yourself, well, what do I admire about that person? Well, I admire their honesty or their authenticity or their kindness. Those are all core values. And if we can create a life where we live in alignment with our core values, we are much more grounded, we are much more fulfilled and we're happier and we're healthier. Another way to think about it, Jim, is this. There are so many external dashboards book sales, Olympic medals, championship rings, promotions, revenue, cost, bottom line, whatever it is. I'm arguing that we need to shift at least a little bit of our attention to an internal dashboard. And that internal dashboard is, hey, here are my core values. Here are the things that I stand for. Am I living in alignment with them? If not, what can I change to better live in alignment with them?
Hey, listen, stress is at an all-time high, right? But you don't have to let the stress of daily life weigh on your body. Whether you're an elite athlete or somebody just like me, just trying to make it through the day tension-free, Theragun can help. Can't wait to tell you about this product. It's amazing. Theragun is the handheld percussive therapy device that releases your deepest muscle tension using a scientifically calibrated combo of depth, speed, and power. And it's as quiet as an electric toothbrush. That's the kind of technology I'm talking about. And the Gen 4 Theragun doesn't just feel good, it gets right to the source of the pain by releasing tension using Theragun's signature percussive therapy, which goes 60% deeper than vibration alone. So whether you want to treat your muscle tension from working out or an injury or just the stresses of everyday life, there is no substitute for the Theragun Gen 4. Nothing better than the Theragun Gen 4. And that's not just me. Don't just take my word for it. Theragun is trusted by 250 professional sports teams, teams like Real Madrid, also elite athletes like Paul George, DeAndre Hopkins, Maria Sharapova, and then hundreds of thousands of customers like you and me. Once again, don't just take my word for it. Try Theragun for 30 days, starting at only $199. It's an amazing value proposition. Go to therabody.com slash reinvention right now and get your Gen 4 Theragun today. Once again, therabody.com slash reinvention. That's therabody.com slash reinvention. I absolutely love mine, and I know you will too. So you know what's interesting then, Brad? Like, for instance, how many people actually put in the time and energy to define what success is, and what if you don't have these core values? Where does that leave you? I think it leaves you to, to, to a great spot of starting by reflecting on what is success. Uh, you know, a big part of the book is offering people alternative definitions. I, I, I think that it is not so much a lack of imagination, but as you mentioned, a lack of pausing and stopping. So I think something to ask yourself is, hey, like, what is success to me? And a lot of people will say, well, it's getting promoted. It's having a family. Well, why is it getting promoted? Why is it having a family? And if you ask why enough times, most people, they want to actually be fulfilled. They want to feel somewhat content and they want to have deep relationships. And a lot of the ways that we pursue success completely work against those fundamental goals. So that gets to the point about defining success in terms of coming up with core values. Uh, as I mentioned, one great way to do this is to think about someone that you really admire. Ask yourself, what do I admire about that person? And then perhaps those are core values that you too would aspire to. Another way to get at this is think about why you first got into something, whether it is a sport, whether it is a career, whether it is a marriage, you name it. And at the time, what excited you about doing that thing? It's so easy to lose sight of that. And if we can reconnect to those things that first excited us, then hopefully we can figure out ways to, to again, to show up day to day in our life and, and practice those values. All right. So in terms of the book itself, Brad, part of this notion of being grounded, in fact, you write that it's based on practicing six principles. Maybe we can spend a moment or two on each, starting with this, quote, accepting where you are to get where you want to go. What does that mean? So it means not deluding yourself. <laughs> right. That's what it most fundamentally yeah, right. means. So we, the, the culture is so good at it, it, it helping us to delude ourselves. So we're in a shitty situation right now, COVID. And it is very easy to try to numb that away with substances, with buying stuff, with tweeting, 
it is very easy to doom spiral and doom scroll and just get caught in despair. What is not so easy is to actually take a pretty clear view of what's happening. COVID-19 sucks. There's no one that it hasn't affected. That's true. There is some historical precedent. There was the 1918 pandemic that coincided with a world war. So our species has been through something like this. We can come out the other side, but maybe we're not at mile 25 of the marathon. Maybe we're actually still at mile 20. And you don't have to like it, but you have to accept where you are. Because if you don't accept where you are and the reality of it's happening, then you're not going to be able to work on it in a productive way. This is also the athlete that can accept that they're aging or can accept that they have a very particular injury, right? So they go out, they don't change their game or they don't rest. And what happens? Maybe they get by for a little while, but then it blows up on them later. So acceptance is really about seeing the thing that is in front of you clearly, even if it's not what you actually want to see. Because as hard as it is in the moment, it sets you up for long-term success. All right, so let me just move off the six for one second because you mentioned athletes and you work with a lot of different types of people, but you work with some really, really high-level athletes. How do you, or how do you think, what is the difference between the champion and the almost champion? Is there a common thread? I think at the most elite level of sport, when you restrict the range to truly elite performers, I think everybody has to have phenomenal genetics and talent. I think there are different ways to be a champion. And I'm really glad that you asked me this question. So I've been thinking about this a lot lately. There's the Michael Jordan route to being a champion. And my sense is many of your listeners have seen the last dance. Jordan was driven as heck. He was angry. And I would argue that a lot of his drive came from a place of emptiness, at least out of anger. Then there's the Giannis way to be a champion. Giannis is fun. He's lighthearted. He doesn't seem to care much that he, you know, misses free throws occasionally. Both of them got to that top of the mountain, which is winning a championship. Jordan won many. Who knows what's in Giannis's future? But I would argue, and I do argue in the book, that we kind of get to choose. And I'm a big fan of the Giannis route to being a champion or the Tim Duncan route to being a champion, right? We, we tend to lionize in the culture the stories of the Jordans and the Kobe's and the fierce drive. But there are many understated champions, too. And I don't know because I haven't done this survey, but my guess is Giannis and Duncan are probably equally, if not more fulfilled and happy than some of those other champions. I wonder, it's really interesting what you said. I think because I'm not saying one's right or wrong. They certainly are different. I just know personally in my life, Brad, and this is, I'm just looking back, I kind of went the other way in terms of that chip on the shoulder, that kind of ferocity, whether or not it was conjured up or real. You know, in your opinion, maybe the other side is more fulfilled. Maybe they're happier. Do you think that, can you run on that angrier type of fuel, for lack of a better word? Is it sustainable? I mean, Jordan, I think he's still running on it, even at this point in his life. Do you think it's sustainable? So let's talk about outliers, right? Michael Jordan's an outlier and uh, both in skill and in temperament. For the vast majority of people, myself included, I'm curious to know if you still feel that way, it is not sustainable. Uh, Just think about when you get angry and when you're really driven, what happens? You clench up, you make a fist, your shoulders rise. Now think about going through life like that. It gets tiring. So let me make a statement, and I think we would all agree on this. Some activities are just better done at home. They just are. For instance, sleeping in your own bed, pausing movies whenever you want, or my favorite, dancing when no one's watching. 
Some things are just better at home, sweet home. And Peloton delivers a workout experience that you would never imagine was possible right in your own home. That is absolutely my go-to. Five to seven days a week. I get on my Peloton. I knock it out. I love it. And I do it at home. And here's exactly what I love about it. Not just the convenience of having a workout like that at home, but having the versatility and number of workouts within. All sorts of music theme classes or artist collaborations, different class types, live, or I can even go back to the archive and find an older ride. All of the above, which I do. And on top of that, you have social engagement. You can keep up with your close friends, and you can enjoy world-class workouts with people around the globe so you're never working out alone. Curated music, limitless disciplines, a seamless fit to your lifestyle. It literally is one of my all-time favorite products. And remember, I had bought a Peloton long before we had a partnership on this podcast. That's how much I believe in that product. So with the Peloton bike, there is nothing like working out from home. Learn more at OnePeloton.com. New members can try Peloton classes for free for 30 days at OnePeloton.com slash app. Terms do apply. That's O-N-E-P-E-L-O-T-O-N.com. OnePeloton.com. Oh, there's no doubt. I I think that that's absolutely true. And now as I get to where I am now in my 50s, I... Part of me, no, I do not have that same exact chip, but I've got enough of a chip that I'm doing this podcast. I'm trying to find a way to reinvent, and I'm not going to lie to you. Part of me wishes I still had that, but how could you possibly have what you had 30 years ago? I mean, I don't know that that's realistic, but there is just a small part of me that wishes I still kind of had that thing. But you you recently said something I think this is really interesting. You said that trying to find and follow your passion is a load of crap. Now, that's an actual quote from you. Well, I don't think you meant it to be funny. It made me laugh because that's exactly what we're told forever, right? Find and follow your passion. But in reality, why is that just a load of crap? So it makes a really high bar on the person in the activity. So we watch Disney movies and we're supposed to fall in love with the magical prince or princess. We watch uh, movies like The Pursuit of Happiness, where you fall into a job or a position at work and you just love it and everything clicks from the get-go. That's not how life actually works. If we have that expectation, what ends up happening is the first minute that anything goes wrong or is less than perfect, we quit and we move on to the next thing. Why? Because, oh, it must not be our passion. It's hard. So the first part of that myth is find your passion as a load of bunk. All kinds of research shows that it is significantly better to lower the bar from passion to interesting and just pursue your interest. The other paradox is passion is developed and built. It is not this lightning strikes, you immediately find the right person, you immediately find the right craft. You have to show up, put in the work, strive to get better, grow, develop, maybe a decade, two decades, three decades down the road, you can look back and say, hey, this is my craft, this is the thing I'm passionate about. Uh, Another way to think about it is I I prefer the word mastery versus passion. Mastery is a lot more sustainable. Then why is follow your passion crap? Well, passion can veer off in two different directions. The first is harmonious passion. This is when you love whatever you're doing because it brings you so much joy to actually do the thing. The second track is what we call obsessive passion. An obsessive passion is when you get more passionate about the external validation in the results of the thing than the thing itself. That is linked to burnout, depression, anxiety. This is the difference is showing up to write a book because you love the process of writing 
versus showing up to write a book because all you want is to be on the New York Times bestseller list. The former, healthy, happy. The latter, destructive burnout. Mm. There's so much interesting stuff in that response. You know, it kind of brings me to another tweet that you had recently. You said a few days ago, quote, if I had to feel motivated to start a workout, I would have done 23 workouts last year, not 230. I had to feel inspired to start writing. There'd be hardly any writing. If you want to stop 20 minutes in, fine, but give yourself a chance. So knowing that, how much of success or fulfillment or happiness is tied to just that, like getting yourself consistently to do the things that you don't want to do, but you know will make you better? 99.9% of it. (laughs) This is a big part of the book. It's probably one of my favorite quotes in the book. And I must have just been like drinking a lot of coffee and on a roll the day that I wrote this sentence. But we think that we need to feel good to get going. And the culture tells us that you have to be super motivated and super inspired. But it's actually the opposite that's true. More often than not, we need to get going to give ourselves a chance at feeling good. So there's so much stuff out there about positive thinking. And and listen, if you're motivated and inspired, go for it. Like we all have those days and those periods. Don't, don't be like, Brad said, this isn't real. Like take that fuel and use it. But most of the time we don't necessarily feel super motivated, inspired, and that's okay. What ends up happening is that we go, we do the thing and mood follows action. This is true in sport. It's true in work. It's true in relationships. Anyone in a stale marriage where like there's lack of physical intimacy, mood follows action. So you just kind of have to show up and get started. Uh, And again, this runs very contrary to conventional thinking on success, which is you're always motivated, you're always crushing it, you're always inspired. Uh, And I argue in the book that true success is a lot more like a craftsperson that has a chisel and just chips away day in and day out. And then you're really proud of what you've done. And you get to look back 30 years later and say, wow, I've built something that I can be proud of, that I'm passionate about, that I feel good about. I I absolutely love that line, mood follows action, mood follows action, that we actually got to flip this thing over to really get at it, mood follows action. So also in in terms, Brad, of groundedness, I had Scott O'Neill on this pod last week, and he wrote an entire book on this next concept that you have in your book, and you devote time to this, and that's being present, being present, quote, being present to own your attention and energy O'Neill talks about being where your feet are. I'd love to get your thoughts on the importance of being present. Yeah. So in modern science, we call this flow, which is that state of being completely, totally in the zone. Your perception of time and space might change. You feel like you're one with your activity. People experience this playing sports, making love, creating. These are moments where you totally lose your ego and you are just in the freaking zone. All periods of flow they rest on a foundation of being fully present for the activity that you're doing. You cannot get into flow if you're simultaneously refreshing your email or going through your text messages or checking CNN.com. So we live in this candy store of novelty and distractions that are constantly fighting for our attention, but in order to experience flow and to get into the zone, and mind you, you don't only perform well in flow, but people report being happiest and most fulfilled in flow, you have to be fully present. So in the book, I say, and I I firmly believe this, that we are always going to lose the battle if we just rely on our willpower to be present. It is like having peanut M&Ms all over your house, but choosing to eat kale and brown rice. Right. Never going to happen. So you have to get upstream of the moment that you want to be present 
and minimize distractions. Eliminate the phone, turn off the email client. Don't have a TV in your office or in your main room if that's a source of distraction. By the way, I, I constantly tell my wife this, man, can we get that shit out of the pantry? I will not leave the house to look for it, but if it's there, I'm going to eat it. I'm going to find it. So I know exactly Yeah, what and life saying. is the same way. Like I, right. I'm going to blow your mind here, or maybe I will. It blew my mind when I started thinking about things like this. But pretty much everything could get put into a bucket of the metaphorical peanut M&Ms or the metaphorical brown rice. And peanut M&Ms, they taste great. And if you are ever faced with a heap of brown rice and a heap of peanut M&Ms, you're going to start eating the M&Ms. But if you eat M&Ms all day, all week, all year, for a decade, God forbid, you feel like crap. Whereas if you eat brown rice consistently, you actually start to feel really good. And it is a phenomenal paradigm because it can be the content that you consume, the people that you surround yourself with, the television that you watch, the books that you read. You can just, you can like very, very clearly have those two columns and say, what are peanut M&Ms? That is in the moment they taste great, but they leave me feeling like crap. What's brown rice, which is, Hey, I need to give myself a little bit of time to get into this. But if I consume it regularly, I actually feel a lot stronger and better. By the way, that did officially blow my mind. I love that analogy. I think that's an amazing analogy because it's not just what you consume. And because I've always been of this opinion, Brad, when we talk about consumption, it's not just about the fuel that you eat. We're talking about consumption, you know, what you read, what you see. It's full consumption. I'd even argue that I, I don't need, I love peanut M&Ms, but I don't need a year or 10 years of eating them to feel like shit. I feel like shit after I've done it because I know I've made a bad decision. And already, yeah, I mean, it, welcome, it comes welcome right back. Welcome to most people's experience on Facebook. <laughs> right, exactly. So what about this with this whole notion of flow state? It's really interesting when you talk about the latest research and the latest science. I mean, I've been reading books of this nature like almost my whole life. I can remember way, 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 way back in the day. I'm talking, I feel like decades ago, I first heard that notion of flow state. And I remember the question coming up then. I'll even ask it right now. Can you consistently activate a flow state or does it just happen? Somewhere in between. You cannot consistently activate it, but you can give yourself the conditions in which it might arise. And foremost is full presence. Another key condition is it has to be an activity that really draws your attention and interests you. And ideally, your skills for that activity should match the challenge level. So if you've never climbed a mountain before and you try to free solo El Cap, you're not going to be in flow because the challenge level is way above your skills. If you're Alex Honnold, the best mountain climber ever, and you're bouldering in my backyard, you're not going to be in flow because the challenge is so far below your skills. So for each individual person, you kind of want to say, hey, here's where I'm at in this activity. I'm going to eliminate distractions so I can be fully present. And I'm going to proceed in a way where the challenge matches my capacity or maybe is slightly beyond my capacity. Brad, I'm so glad that you answered that that way because I was going to ask you about this. I've been thinking quite a bit lately about this notion of choosing hard and this notion that mm -hmm. all the real good stuff is on the other side of hard. I feel pretty strongly that that is the case. Now, I would imagine not everybody does, right? In fact, there's probably no shortage of folks who will do anything they can to avoid hard. So why is it good to do hard things? Oh, man, you're asking the best questions. I could talk to you all day. I love this stuff. So it is good to do hard things, particularly if they are real and concrete. So meaning like lifting weights, running, gardening, making a sculpture, things that are real in the world. 
because they keep you humble. Most of us in the knowledge economy work in jobs where, oh, the report was good, the report was bad. Here's the PowerPoint slide. The reviewers like my book, they didn't like my book. It's all subjective. And if you're really good, you can talk yourself into such an ego because eventually people just start telling you everything that you did is good. When you go to deadlift 400 pounds, you either lift the bar or you don't. If you're trying to grow a sugar maple tree, it either takes hold and grows or it doesn't. These concrete successes and failures, they have such a way of not only grounding us literally in the world, but also keeping us humble because we get to fail. Or if we have success, we know it's hard earned. We know it's not just success because the minions below us are worried about what we're going to say on their performance review at the office. So I'm a firm believer that just about everyone doesn't have to be everything in life. I'm not like a, you know, crush yourself and, and never have fun or never relax, never sip on bourbon. But I think that there's such value to having at least one or two very hard things that you do that are concrete, where there's no wishy-washy interpretations or bullshit, and you either succeed or fail. And I actually think so many of these powerful men that recently have gotten busted just doing dumb shit, I think if they lifted weights or ran marathons, that wouldn't happen because they'd be humble and they wouldn't think that they're gods. Really interesting. All right, so which brings me to the next point. You talk about moving your body to steady and strengthen your mind. How does moving your body steady and strengthen your mind? Well, in a few ways. The first is, well, we don't know the mechanism. We do know that physical activity is not only great for cardiovascular health and muscular health, but also for mental and emotional health. So if exercise could be bottled up into a pill, it would be a trillion dollar blockbuster. It would be the most effective antidepressant that there is. So the first thing is just purely scientific that again, researchers are trying to figure out what the mechanism is and they're trying to do that so they can try to then make the pill to replicate the mechanism. I personally think it's got like so, uh, so many variables and so multifactorial that we'll probably never get there. But we know that when you move your body, you tend to feel better. The second reason that moving your body stabilizes your mind is because we also know that if you spend too much time just locked into your body in a sedentary way, you start to lose focus, you start to get restless. And if we were not, we did not evolve to sit in chairs all day and look at screens. So if we can get back in touch with our natural physicality and move, not only do we feel better, but it also then makes it easier for us to show up for a conventional work, which so often is screen-based, sitting, perhaps standing. So then what, what kind of movement? Are we talking any kind of movement? I mean, is it just walking? Do you have to do like really challenging, hard movement? What kind of movement? All movement is good movement. I make it very simple in the book. My rules for movement are move your body often, sometimes hard, every bit counts. Mm-hmm. Now, also, Brad, you write about something called heroic individualism. What is that? And then how much of a toll does that take, not just on the individual, but the community overall? Yeah, I'm glad that you're making this connection. So heroic individualism, we glossed over this earlier in, in, in speaking about definitions of success. I define heroic individualism as this game of one-upsmanship against yourself and others, so constantly trying to be better than yourself and then others in a way, and this is the key, in a way where measurable achievement is the only arbiter of success. And unfortunately, so many of the things that matter most for ourselves and our communities are things that you cannot cleanly measure. 
talked about this a little bit earlier. Are you living in alignment with your core values? Are you showing up for other people in your community? Or are you so focused on optimization and getting the raise and getting promoted that you make no time to even reflect on your core values, let alone try to live in alignment with them, and no one in your neighborhood knows who you are because you're always at work? And no one on their deathbed has ever said, oh, I should have worked more or I should have optimized more. Very few people on their deathbed have even said, oh, I love the gold medal. What they say, if they're fortunate enough to have practiced groundedness along the way, they'll say, what I remember is the relationships along the way of striving for gold. And I think that when we get so focused on efficiency and optimization, it crowds out time for us to build community and to build those relationships. And again, the paradox is in the short term, sure, going all in on efficiency and optimization is great. But in the long term, to be successful, you need community because eventually shit hits the fan, something goes wrong, and you need people that are going to be there for you to hold you up. The flip side is if you have a wild success, guess who helps keep your ego in check? Your community, along with deadlifting, like we talked about earlier. Hmm. Well, let me ask you this then, and maybe I'm missing something here, but also in the book, if we talk about balance, right? Like I could pose the question, how important is it to achieve balance in our lives? Or might you counter with actually it's not important because it doesn't really exist? Yeah, you read my mind. I'd counter with exactly what you said. So I think balance is bullshit. I think that balance, the way it's talked about, at least in self-help books and business books, is to do equal things in equal proportion and do them equally well. Well, have you ever met someone that is really interesting that's balanced? Have you ever met someone that is great at what they do that's balanced? No. I argue no. no I haven't. No, of Have course you? not. No, of course not. How right. could you be? So rather than strive for balance, what I think you ought to do is know your priorities, the things that you really care about. Talk about this in terms of language, again, of core values, and then give yourself permission to go all in on those things with, and this is a really important with, with breaks to check in and see if those are still your priorities. So rather than try to be balanced at any given point in time, I think most good lives, if you zoom in, they don't look balanced at all. But over the course of a lifetime, someone's really balanced. So you can think of it like of an athlete almost. You have a competition season. So maybe you have a season for work. Maybe there's a season for family. Maybe there's a season for relationships. Maybe there's a season for learning a new skill or a new craft. So it's less about trying to be balanced always more about defining the things that you care deeply about, going all in on those things, but having enough self-awareness to know when enough is enough and it's time to pull out. All right, so now you're an author and you're an executive coach and you're a speaker and you do a lot of different things and you've got a brand new book out, which is a really, really good book. So it would stand a reason that you feel pretty strongly that we should read, but even more so, like you feel really strongly that we should all still be reading as much as we can why is that? And then what should we be reading? So part of the reason that I feel strongly y'all should be reading is because like you said, my predominant hat that I wear is as an author. So I just love books. I grew up on the football field and I grew up in bookstores. And man, people in high school would think I was this enigma. Um, this is a humble brag, but I was captain of the varsity football team. And I was also like straight A honor roll student that, you know, when not on the football field was in the library. So reading has just always been a part of my identity and my core. Um, why is reading so important? Well, I think for a few reasons. I think one is it makes you smarter. Like there's no better way to learn and not only to learn, but to create a web of associations in your brain of different topics and connect them in your own unique way than to read a bunch of books. 
The other thing that I think that reading in particular is really good for is helping you remember stuff. So I got no problem with audiobooks. I got no problem with watching television. I do both of those things at times. But if there's a topic that I really care about, I read. And here's why. When you're listening to an audiobook, when you're watching TV, it doesn't demand your entire attention. You can consume it passively. You can be doing the dishes. You can be checking in with your friends. You can pull up your phone, all kinds of things. You could be driving your car. Hopefully not if you're watching TV, but certainly for listening. Whereas when you read a book, you have to only be reading the book. Maybe you could be going on a slow paced walk, but other than that, when you're reading, you have to be reading. So it forces you to single task. And I go a step further and I recommend to all my coaching clients that when you read, you ought to read with a highlighter or a pen to make notes and to underline. And then finally, the mind body, we think of them as separate things, but they're really integrated. And there's this fascinating research that shows just having a physical book in your hands increases memory and retention by 40% versus an ebook or audio. No highlighting, controlling for single tasking. We are just tactile creatures and there's something about having something real that is physical that helps our brain retain and remember better. That is really interesting. So who and what have you been reading of late? So let's see. As of late, I have been reading a long biography on Tolstoy, uh, Leo Tolstoy. He's a writer that fascinates me. Um, I just finished a book by Oliver Berkman called 4,000 Weeks because I learned that that is the average lifespan of a human. And most people hear that and they say, oh shit, that's it. And the book is then about how do you manage those 4,000 weeks? Um, and I am rereading, I try to read this book every year in the fall or in the winter, my favorite book of all time, which is a book called Zen in the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance by an author named Robert Persig. Hmm. Interesting. All right. So let me, I, I mean, Brad, I could do this and I really appreciate you and your time. I could do this for a few more hours. I'm just kind of jumping around a little bit right now. And the book is great. Your new book is just great. I really appreciate Thanks. it too. Let me ask you this. Employers, there are employers I know for a fact listening to this and they will understand this, but we've gone through a period that many are calling the great resignation. Employees are quitting and oftentimes without even having a well thought out plan for what they're going to do once they quit. So what's going on here? Maybe we've touched on this in part, but what's going on here and why are so many people resigning or quitting their positions? So I have two theories in I have no idea which or, or if either of these are right. The first one is that some people genuinely don't like their jobs. Their jobs suck or it's not a good fit for them. They're examining their core values. They're doing all the things that I want people to do in my book. And they're realizing that, hey, I actually want to make a pivot with how I spend my time. That is the narrative that is getting almost, if not all, of the media attention. I think that there's a second narrative at play, that if I wasn't so busy launching the practice of groundedness over the last few weeks, I would have been writing about this nonstop because it fascinates me. I think that another thing that is going on is some people are just bored. Over the last 18 months, so much of life has been shut down or minimized. The things that we used to do for excitement, concerts, sporting events, even just going out to dinner for so many people in so many parts of the country, we haven't been able to do that. So what do you do when you're bored? Well, you crave novelty. What's the source of novelty? Huh, might as well change my job. That's exciting. And I really think that that's driving at least some of this great reshuffling. Um, I, some of my coaching clients, they're losing people 
left and right. And they're like, what am I doing wrong? And it's a pattern amongst all my clients. So I'm like, either I'm a shitty coach because I'm the common thread or something else is going on here. And then I ask them, well, how many people are applying? And they're seeing record number of applicants. So lots of people are just switching jobs from one company to another in the same industry. And that bodes well for this. People are bored and it's exciting. And then, I don't know, Jim, I assume you watch the Olympics. I watch the Olympics on Peacock. And every other commercial break was this Google commercial about people typing into Google, how to find a new job, how to wear new clothes, how to search for a job, how to manage my first team. So think about it. People have been locked up for 18 months, bored. They're watching these Olympic athletes do the most inspirational things. And then Google is coming on and telling them, well, maybe you should change your job. That's inspiring. So I think that some of it is driven by poor fit, poor jobs. But I think there's another narrative here, which is people are bored and it's something to do and it's exciting. Glad I asked. I agree with you. So before you go, a couple of really quick things. Brad, you write about the space between stimulus and response and how critical it is. What space are you talking about and why is that so important? So something happens. Let's, uh, let's use a sports analogy first. The team that you are playing against in football comes out in a formation that you've never seen and they just start rolling with it. That's the stimulus. It's something that is completely unexpected. You can either react, which is immediately default to whatever feels most comfortable, which is often not the best thing to do, or you can respond, which is take a thoughtful, deliberate action as a result. And 99.9999% of the time, responding makes more sense. So the space between stimulus and response is what goes on in your mind when you are encountered with something unexpected, something off script, instead of just reacting rotely based on what's most comfortable in your pattern, having the split second to make an evaluation and then be discerning, thoughtful, and deliberate about your action makes a lot of sense. And a lot of people will actually use sports to try to like poke holes in this. So they'll say, well, wait a minute, a running back hitting a hole The goal is to have no space. The goal is just to go. Yet think about what do the best athletes say? What's the difference between high school and college, college and pro? The game speeds up, but all the top athletes, they have the ability to slow the game down in their mind. Great quarterback slows the game down. What are they doing? They're creating space to make a decision. Really interesting. That is the whole point. You want to slow the game down or like Le'Veon Bell. Remember how he used to kind of work his way along that line, just waiting for things to develop. He was patient. Here's something else you have. Brad, that it's really interesting. Not, not that we haven't heard this before, but you write, surround yourself wisely. Why is that? I mean, is this essentially just another form of we are who we roll with? Yeah, more or less. I mean, they science the shit out of we are who we roll with because now you've got thousands of peer-reviewed studies that prove that. But yes, emotions are contagious. Excuse me, emotions are contagious. Motivation is contagious. Even morality is contagious. There's been some fascinating studies around doping in sports and fraud in the business world, and they tend to occur in clusters. So the most notorious case is U.S. Postal and Lance Armstrong. But um, we see that when people act unethically, it happens in clusters. So yeah, the people that you surround yourself, those are mirrors, and you're reflecting on them, and they're reflecting on you. You mentioned Lance. That's kind of interesting, Brad. Like, since you are a sports guy, I I didn't know that you were you felt as strongly and had as strong a sports background as you do. I'm just kind of going way off topic. I'm just following you around really quickly. Like Lance, ethically, morally, when you look at Lance Armstrong and you know that he was in a sport where doping was just 
tantamount. I mean, like, it seems kind of ridiculous. Look, I'm going to admit this. I I used to interview Lance way back in the day, and he and I did very well. And I got caught up like everybody else when the book dropped because what an amazing story. But how utterly naive and foolish of us to think that in a sport where almost everybody cheated, the one guy who was far better than everybody else wouldn't. I mean, kind of naive, right? At the same time, he did legitimately fight this fight against cancer, and he helped so many people. So when you step back and you look at him, what kind of thoughts generally do you have about him and the way he conducted himself you know i've never met lance so i can't say anything from personal experience i'll also say that no one in my mind gets all red checks or all green checks very few people i guess i reserve reserve that for very few people so most people like the poet walt whitman right he said that we contain multitudes i think that's true of everything so this is all from the outside looking in having never met lance whether or not, so first off, the doping thing in my mind is inexcusable. Even if everyone in the sport's doing it, well, there are so many kids that are coming up that aren't doping, that didn't get a chance to compete because everyone else was doping. And I feel for those kids more than I feel sorry for the athletes that said, well, everyone else was doing it. So that's the first thing. So doping aside, whether or not Lance Armstrong is a kind person with a big heart that wanted to genuinely help millions of people with cancer or, and I don't know which one of these it is, probably some of both, or was Lance Armstrong an egomaniac narcissist that only did this because he liked being the man? It doesn't matter because at the end of the day, he raised a shit ton of money for cancer and was inspiring for so many people going through hell. So I think, you know, if the person listening is uncomfortable because I'm kind of giving like an if, if, if answer, I would challenge you listener to actually get uncomfortable yourself and realize that, even someone as polarizing as Lance Armstrong probably isn't all good or all bad. Hmm. So, Brad, last thought. When, like, worst case scenario, say somebody's listening and they're hearing all this, but they're just in a bad, bad way, right? Maybe this person never really took the time to cultivate good habits or good consistent patterns of behavior and maybe they're hurting maybe maybe they know it's just too hard maybe they're saying you know what man i know that i can't change i know that i can't lose that weight i know that it's not going to get better or they're in a rut whatever it is where do you start other than just to start and how do you break those patterns what advice would you have for that person so the first thing I'd say is play back what you just said. You, like my three and a half year old son says, you have to start from the start. So this is back to acceptance in the book. Don't delude yourself. Here's You are where you are. You have to start there. The second thing I'd say is there's this old Eastern parable that the best time to plant a tree was yesterday. The second best time is today. So plant the tree today. This conversation has been inspiring. Pick up the book. There's so many concrete principles and practices. It will walk you through the process to start planting that tree. The third thing I say is there are some listeners that are in such a bad place that they are beyond getting help from a book like the one I wrote. If you are having thoughts of self-harm or life is completely meaningless, or you are so anxious that you're scared to leave the house to go to the bookstore or to order the book, you don't want to go talk to the mailman, that's okay too. People go through shitty times like that, get professional help. A lot of dudes listen to the show. I've experienced depression before. It sucks. The only way I got out of it is by getting help. So I think it's kind of a two-part answer. The first is if you're just down in a more conventional way, probably like most listeners, remember, don't judge yourself for not planting the tree yesterday. Just get started today. I hope the book helps. The second thing is if you're feeling really down in a hole, get help. It's the strong thing to do, and there are ways to get better. Really important stuff. So when you mentioned, just as the last thought, when you mentioned that you've had periods of depression, do you mean like clinical depression or 
things yeah, that clinical were- depression saw a therapist weekly was in a really, really, really bad hole. And, you know, probably would not be okay if I hadn't worked with such a great therapist for about nine months every week. You know, the fact of the matter is, Brad, and part of that, I mean, I'm not going to speak for you, but you know how it is. It's luckily, luckily, we're having a dialogue and a conversation and it's changing. But for so long, especially for men or athletes, it was so taboo. It was a sign of weakness. If you need help, get help, right? The strength is admitting I need help and doing something about it. Yeah, 100%. And, and I think it's important, right? People look at me. I'm this young guy. I've got these books. I coach athletes, executives. Like, I've been depressed. It happens. Not going to happen to everyone, but if it does happen to you, know that you're not broken. It's something that is actually quite common. And thank goodness there are so many highly trained professionals in therapy. There are good medications that worked. And I think the more and more that people like Kevin Love, DeMar DeRozan, Simone Biles can speak out about mental health, the better. I do think, and now I know we're going a bit over, there's this fascinating thing happening in sports right now that's been on my mind a lot. Go ahead. So if, if you can humor me, let me go on Please. Here. So the pendulum used to be so far in the direction that you stated, which is tough it up, stigma, you're broken if you have depression, if you have anxiety, you're a scaredy cat. Now the pendulum is swinging completely in the other direction, which is everyone share about your mental health challenges. If you're not feeling good, take a self-care day, on and on and on. The truth based on all the evidence-based therapies is somewhere in the middle. So Simone Biles, she made the right choice for her. She is tough as nails. She's been through hell and back, competed with kidney stones, broken toes, sexual assault case that she was like the main survivor on, uh, on and on and on. So I'm not here to judge her. I think she made the right call. But if you're a kid that's about to run your first 400 meter race and you feel anxious and you tell yourself, well, hey, you know, all these athletes aren't doing the hard thing, so I'm not going to do the hard thing. That's called avoidance. And the first thing that you learn in therapy is not to give in to those feelings of avoidance, because when you give in to them, they just make the beast stronger. So I'm really, really, really as glad as anyone to see the conversation about mental health and to see so many athletes leading the way and getting rid of stigma. I think the next step is to talk about the nuance of, okay, now that the stigma is gone, how do we actually treat these things? Because there's a lot of paradox. The way to treat anxiety is not to not do the scary thing. It's to take the anxiety along for the ride and to do the scary thing anyways. Now, when you're Simone Biles and that scary thing could have you break your back, no, she made the right call. But if little kids are watching this and saying, oh, I'm, I'm scared about my first day of school, maybe I shouldn't go, that actually just perpetuates anxiety. So I hope that over the next few years, the conversation deepens and we go from knowing to actually understanding and taking the right actions to help people get better. So where do you draw the line? That's such a fascinating conversation. In terms of avoidance, where do we draw the line? Like, don't do it if you're going to break your back or, you know, I'm being well, flipped when I that's say clearly that. But. One, yeah, that's clearly one line. Um, <laughs> in therapy, good therapists often have people rate fear and anxiety on a 10-point scale. And 10 out of 10 or 9 out of 10 probably doesn't make sense to do. But 8 out of 10, even if it's really hard, even if you think you're going to die doing it, you probably ought to do it. Um, it's impossible to, you know, every situation is different, but I would just say that it's not either, or it's both. And sometimes it does make sense and it is the strong thing to do to opt out. Other times it makes sense to push through and to take the, the hard emotions along for the ride. This new book is entitled the practice of groundedness. Brad, the amazing thing is, I think you probably agree. We, 
we covered a lot of ground, but probably did not scratch the surface. There is so much more within the book that I know the listener and or reader would benefit from. It seems pretty obvious at this point, but is this a book where they can get, quote, wherever they find their books? Yeah, you can get the book at Amazon, Barnes and Nobles, bookshops, uh, pretty much everywhere. All right. So in addition to that, if they want to learn more about you and your teachings and your work, what's the best way for them to find you? Yeah, thanks for asking, Jim. Um, I am on Twitter. That's my peanut M&M of choice. My social media, it's at B Stahlberg. And my website is my name, www.bradstahlberg.com. And then I am the co-founder of a media platform that explores peak performance in these ways. And that is www.thegrowtheq.com. You know, what's interesting. I, you see, you, you need to stop answering questions because they're inherently, there are these natural follows. I'm really curious. Twitter, yeah, it is. Twitter was once the very shiny thing, but it's still your choice, your platform of choice. Why is that? Um, I think for a few reasons. I, and, and now I'm painting two broad swaths and generalities, but I think that for me, Twitter, I have the highest chance of actually engaging with really interesting ideas, whereas the other platforms tend to devolve into conspiracy or political ranting um, or just like airbrush pictures of look how good my six pack looks. And I'm not interested in that. And I know that if I spend a lot of time in there, it won't be long before I'm airbrushing my own not six pack. So Twitter for me is the most idea driven. Um, But again, that's just a personal thing. I think other people would probably say that Twitter is terrible and tell you all the reasons that Instagram is better. Right. I do not disagree with what you're saying. I I see both sides of this, but I I do not disagree with what you just said. Brad, what a great, great conversation. I'm so glad. Number one, I did not mean to keep you that long, but I thought it was fascinating. So thank you for making time for this podcast, for our listeners. The book I think is amazing, and it's something that everybody should go out and get, and we could all benefit from. And I really appreciate you and your time so much, Brad. Yeah, thanks, Jim. It was a blast talking to you. Um, I've long been a fan because, as you said, I am a sports guy. And, it, and, and this book is, while not directly a sports book, it was nice to uh, to be able to, at times, tie some of the lessons into the sports world. No, I thought that was great. I thought that was great the way you worked that in. And I'm glad that I could enter your world and you could come back into this world. And it all made perfect sense. So thank you very much. I really appreciate that. All right. Thanks, Jim. So nobody likes the person who says, I told you so, but I told you so. My dude is sharp. Pardon my middle-aged slang, but Brad's all up in here just spitting knowledge. One of my favorite lines of that entire conversation is mood follows action. Mood follows action. It's simple, but to me, it's brilliant. You don't like the way you feel? Get up and move. It works. Now, Brad's not the first one to suggest something like that, except I've never heard anybody state it quite like that, that mood follows action. Just as he's the first one that I've ever heard say, move your body to steady and strengthen your mind. I mean, it seems pretty self-evident, but movement is just as important to your mental health as it is to your physical health, which is why as soon as I'm done here, I'm going to run this hill right near where I live because mood follows action. I'm in a pretty good mood right now, but I know I'll be in an even better mood once I run that hill. The other thing that I really appreciate about Brad is that while he is a deep thinker and really cerebral, he's not here to blow a bunch of sunshine up our asses. He's not saying he rolls out of the rack every single morning inspired or that he wakes up and is shot out of a cannon. Hence that tweet, quote, 
if I had to feel motivated to start a workout, I would have done 23 workouts last year, not 230. If I had to feel inspired to start writing, there'd be hardly any writing. Quote, end of quote. You see, that's some real talk right there. As an example, my 17-year-old son said to me the other day, Dad, I worked out three hours today. Man, I am so tired. I have my ACT tutor early in the morning. I really don't want to do it, and I want to move that lesson to another day. I said, son, I get it. I really do. I'm hanging as well, and I really don't want to bang that alarm clock at 4.45 a.m. tomorrow morning. I don't want to do that, and I don't want to roll in there and host a three-hour radio program again. But you know what? I'm going to bang that alarm clock at 4.45 a.m. tomorrow morning, and I am going to host that radio program anyway because that's how it works. We do the work every day, and not only when we're inspired. If that were the case, you'd probably only work once a week. Good work if you can get it. Maybe they'll even pay you for five days even though you only work one. Listen, you want to create some separation. You want to improve. Get yourself to do the things you don't want to do that you know will make you better and then do them every bleeping day. And before you say, hey, genius advice, rocket scientist, look in the damn mirror and make sure you are doing that every day before you at me. And then on top of that, remember the power of groundedness or as Brad himself states, when the world feels big and complex and scary and out of control, it can be helpful to focus on what is directly in front of you. It's a direct quote. Or as he also puts it, focus on the process and not the acute results. In other words, as last week's guest, Scott O'Neill said, be where your feet are. Oh, and if you're not feeling inspired and you don't want to do the work, just do it anyway. As always, I hope you got as much out of this conversation with Brad Stahlberg as I did. Again, his new book, The Practice of Groundedness, is tremendous, and I would really encourage you to get it because that is something else we covered. Reading as much as we can is not only still critical, but it's as important now as ever. If you like what you're hearing on this podcast, can you do me a solid? Can you make sure that you are subscribed? And please review and share it as that really does go a long way. Have yourselves an amazing week, and I will see you next next time right here on the reinvention project with Jim Rome seeking the truth never gets old introducing June's journey the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the Roaring Twenties. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.